Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're looking at the relationship between two of the core concepts and practices in this field. And those are uh, the concepts of public diplomacy and the concept practice of place branding. And this should be an interesting conversation because I've always thought of public diplomacy as being the, <laughs> the greater practice which incorporates uh, place branding as, as one of its instruments. And Simon, you don't, you, I gather you don't see it that way. No, I see it exactly the other way around, although with some reservations, because as you know, I suffer from a series of pathologies connected with that whole idea of place branding. But insofar as it exists, I think I see public diplomacy as being a subset of it. But we can we can delve into that more deeply. It'll be interesting. So my approach to public diplomacy is that what it is, is the ways in which an international actor advances their foreign policy through engagement with a foreign public. So uh, I, I see that as being a broad set of activities, uh, the most important of which is listening to a foreign public. And then my classic five are beyond listening, you've got advocacy, cultural outreach, exchanges and and international broadcasting and those five i can see in some form going way back in history certainly long before anybody used the term public diplomacy but so i would look then at place branding as being one of the practices that would be incorporated within the advocacy aspect of public diplomacy. You might use some of the place branding tools in terms of listening, working out how you're understood. So I would see place branding as, as having a role in, in listening. And it could also illuminate your culture, your exchange work. So, it, you know, it fits under all those headings in, in some way. But uh, for me, public diplomacy is the organizing logic. So what would your initial pitch be then to the converse, or how do you reconcile those? Let, let me, if I may, just ask you to complete your setting out your thesis. Sure. Um, if you could also define place branding as you did with public diplomacy, how do you understand right. place branding? Well, I see place branding as being distinct from place brand. And, you know, I'm in a way more comfortable thinking about the idea of a place brand, which I see as the meaning that a place has in an audience's imagination. Whereas I see once you get into place branding, it's an attempt to move that meaning through certain interventions or publicity, tourism type campaigns, promotional activity or, or policies that are intended to resonate in a particular way with an international audience. Hmm. So I hope that's not too far from your under your, your. Well, no, and as you know, the distinction between place brand and place branding, those critical three letters, is one one I've often made. I'm with you on that. The 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 reason I see it the other way around is 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 basically this. Let's just temporarily define place branding in the way that most people seem to understand it. 
in other words, a set of tools and techniques, whatever they may be, designed to change, manipulate people's perceptions of a place. Mm-hmm. And we know why people would want to do that, because it's pretty clear that places uh, with good positive images trade at a premium and places with uh, weak or negative images trade at a discount. So there's every possible incentive for countries to want to be better regarded. Now, as you well know, Nick, when I, when I started working and researching in this field oh, 20 years or more ago, I proposed a model which I called the hexagon of place brand, mm-hmm. which was simply a way of explaining how countries come about the images that they've got, and by extension, cities and regions as well. And the hexagon is basically the six natural channels through which all places communicate their image to the outside world accidentally or deliberately it's nearly always accidental and those six points of the hexagon are amongst others culture its people its products its landscape and so forth now according to that model public diplomacy sits under one of those six points of the hexagon the one called governance so diplomacy whether it's public or private diplomacy is a task which is generally the responsibility of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it's conducted as an act of international relations by the people responsible for foreign affairs, usually by diplomats under the auspices of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And so therefore, from the perspective of classic place branding, public diplomacy is one set of communicative planning, listening, researching devices under one point of the hexagon. But what place branding tries to do is it tries to look at all activities of the nation, all aspects of the nation, and all stakeholders and participants in the nation to jointly work together to move forward the image of the country. I think we're both right in the sense that if you look at this chronologically or as a, as a, as a process, one of the ways in which public diplomacy is more effective is if a country has a higher standing. If people admire and respect it, then everything becomes easier, including diplomacy, and perhaps especially public diplomacy, because if people trust your country, they're more likely to pay attention to what you do, listen to what you say, follow your example, trust you, trust your people, and so on and so forth. And so it really depends on what you're planning. If you're planning public diplomacy, you may well say, well, the first thing we've got to do before we can do this well is we need to improve the image of our country. So let's do some place branding. But my argument is you can't just do place branding. There is no such thing. And this is the reason why the word branding is is so treacherous and so misleading, because it suggests that there exists a process or an approach or a set of approaches which are capable of manipulating people's perceptions of countries. But I think both of us would agree that no such uh, approaches exist. The only way that people ever change their minds about countries are if countries behave differently from the way they behaved before over a very long period. That's right. But, you know, what I think, what I like about the hexagon is that I see it as a great tool of listening and of uh, actually visualizing the meaning of the of, of a place for an international audience. Yeah. But so much of the time, what you're presenting through the hexagon data is this inherited position based on things that are largely beyond the control of any one government. 
So it, it, it's almost like you're measuring the landscape, creating a map of your, your reality rather than a short-term gauge on what's been going well or badly for a particular administration. But let's talk about the effectiveness of the approaches, because I think that's a, that's a, a really fundamental issue. As you know, one of my bugbears with the whole place branding uh, construct is that there's little or no evidence that it actually produces any effect. The, the Nation Brands Index, which measures people's perceptions of countries around the world every year, shows, as you know, because I've often repeated it uh, in these conversations, no correlation whatsoever between the effort or the money that countries put into manipulating their images and their images. The images seem to move up or down, generally up, over the years, without any uh, consideration to what the countries are actually trying to do about it. Now, to summarize, there is no proof that place branding works. Is there proof that public diplomacy works? Ah, that's a good question. I think that there are some elements of public diplomacy that we know uh, work well. So, for example, you take international broadcasting, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we know that international broadcasting can be successful in particular situations, that people who do not have access to free media appreciate deeply being given access to free media by external parties. You know, you just talk to people who grew up in Eastern Europe and it's a major, or people who were in occupied uh, Europe during World War II, uh, BBC is immensely important in their lives. Uh, For example, clearly exchanges before you, before, you, before you move on to exchanges, let me just challenge you on that one, because I would argue that people listening to and liking foreign broadcasts is an output, not an outcome. That wasn't the reason the Voice of America was created. The reason the Voice of America was created was in order to try to sway the views of these populations in a different direction against the regime under which they were living. Had it, did it demonstrably achieve that? Because just to say we produced a product that people loved, I think so. I I think that tyranny requires a kind of hermetically sealed news bubble and having Mm. alternative views coming into it breaks the illusion of the totalitarian voice. Um, So so I see it as being tremendously important. Uh, With exchanges, you can look at the way, for example, that the Elysee Accords helped France and Germany to Mm -hmm. converge. I think with cultural diplomacy, there's examples of successful cultural diplomacy, particularly when it's collaborative rather mm. than just countries showing off. Mm. I've seen successful uh, advocacy campaigns that have brought people round to thinking that something's important that they hadn't thought of as important before. For example, the, the international landmine campaign, I think, is quite a su- successful one. And as for listening... I know, for example, that President Eisenhower's decision to move civil rights to the fore of the American domestic agenda was because of what he heard people in other countries saying about the United States. Basically, it wasn't a priority for him until he heard what the rest of the world was saying, and particularly what the Soviet Union was saying. And he realized that the United States couldn't be land of the free Mm. if it still had first and second class citizens. Mm. So I, I think that there are there are practices inside public diplomacy that are tremendously significant and valuable, but not every, you know, the, those are the, the, the stones that hit the bird. Not every stone hits the bird. 
and it has to be really carefully managed. But what I would say to you to flip it round is, have you seen examples of nation branding actually correlating negatively? One of the things that I warn against rhetorically is what I call the Carly Simon syndrome. That is when somebody talks so much about how wonderful they are that it mm. becomes repulsive. As mm. in Carly Simon's song, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. And that repulsion of an individual's obsession, in, in the case of the song, it's a him with mm. his image. Yeah. Does that transfer onto, onto countries? Do you think that it's... Well, I'm sure you do think it's really annoying when a country just wants to talk about itself. You know, imagine a country that would dare to have a slogan about being great, for example, and how uh, if anybody is dared to do that, just to, what a wind up uh, it would be. Um, but, you know, I know I wouldn't like that and but you wouldn't like it. But do we have data to suggest that we are not alone and people are repelled by boastful nation branding? Well, the, the, this, is, this has long been one of my objections to the whole idea of nation branding, that the countries that spend taxpayers' money bragging about their assets and achievements, if it gets through to people, likely to produce this repulsion effect. It seems very plausible to me, but we don't know for sure. And the reality of the matter is that the research shows no correlation, either positive or negative, between the amount of money the countries spend and their consequent image. And I think the, the bottom line is, yes, theoretically, if you spent enough money on it, you could annoy people enormously. But the reality is that most countries don't spend anything like enough even to annoy people. Because I think what governments often fail to appreciate is the fact that if they are determined to send out messages via the media about their country, they're not just competing with other countries. They're competing with every single advertiser out there. They're competing with Nike and Toyota and Nestle and all the others for, for mind space. They're competing for the attention of the man or woman on the street, the viewer of the TV. And in order for a message, any message about a country to actually penetrate the public consciousness internationally would require an expenditure in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars a year because that's what organizations like Nike and Toyota have mm -hmm. to spend in order to market their products globally. Now, what's a big budget for a so-called nation branding campaign? 10 million would be a huge one. You don't buy any global attention for 10 million. It vanishes without trace. A few people might see it once or twice, and that's about as far as it goes. Now, we have to be very strict here about distinguishing between sector-specific promotion and what we're talking about here, which is overall attempts to manage the image of the country. Sector-specific promotion, and particularly tourism promotion, is a very different matter. And of course, there are plenty of countries that have spent um, many tens, if not even hundreds of millions, on promoting their tourism. But that's different. That's product marketing. You've got a product called tourism. You want people to buy it. Absolutely, you've got to go out and sell it because your competitors are doing the same and you have to outspend them. But when we're talking, which is why, for example, a, a campaign like Incredible India, mm -hmm. which ran and I believe continues to run today for many years, has had enormous sums of money spent on it, probably very effective as a tourism campaign. And that's, I think, really all it was ever intended to be. 
it may have a trickle-through effect over time of doing something to make a broader public think broadly better things about India broadly, but that's not really the intention. So we always have to be rigorous about separating those, those two activities. But generally speaking, the simple answer to the question is, we don't really know. The whole area is very murky. And by the way, going back to your excellent examples there of the types of public diplomacy activity that appear to work, it's still pretty murky there. We're still a very long way away from being able to be forensic about how much taxpayers' money we're spending and how much taxpayers' money we're wasting, Mm. because you don't really know. And yes, you may find that the German public are more kindly disposed towards the French public after 15 years of the Elysee Accord, but can we really attribute 100% of that change to this one set of activities? No, we can't. It's very much... Simon, time to time with the students, I say, well, imagine that you had a big budget, right? And you've Mm. got a time machine. What could Mm. you change in history through a public diplomacy intervention? Right. If we could travel back to 1850, could Mm. we prevent the First World War through Mm. public diplomacy intervention? Could Mm. we? And, you know, that's a challenging... By forcing Gavrilo Princip to to listen to the voice. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe you could, maybe you you couldn't. It's really Mm. difficult to know what to do. But if you can't do it in the past, if the past seems inevitable to us now, maybe the future is... It's not so much inevitable. Inevitable to us, you know. It's not so much inevitable inevitable as ineffably complex. Yes, that's right. And one can't trace the actual roots of things because they're too many and too tangled. You and I were were both involved with the UK Foreign Office when we were attempting to set up a measurement system for the UK's soft power and public diplomacy initiative. And you'll remember, as I do, how in the end we could only conclude that it was largely a matter of faith and goodwill. You can go a certain way towards measuring the effectiveness of what you do, but there's a law of diminishing returns. And you very quickly get to a stage where you're spending so much on getting 1% more accuracy in your tracking and your measurement, mm-hmm. that actually you'd have done better to spend it on more activity rather than on more measurement. So this is what a lot of governments, responsible governments anyway, find quite difficult to pallet, that at a certain point, they've just got to say, okay, this is plausible, it's probably good, all the indications suggest that it does the right sort of thing in the right sort of area, let's just go with it without being able to measure as precisely as, say, fiscal policy, uh, what it achieves or what it doesn't, because the the air is so full of noise. And you just don't know how much your own activity contributes to the the end result. Right. It's it's guesswork. But, uh, you know, thinking back to that time, it struck me that governments are looking for better measurement, but until they find a measurement that tells them what they want to hear, and then so suddenly the quest is over. It isn't necessarily measurement for its own sake, but mm. rather measurement that it provides a persuasive justification for the policy yeah. that they want to that they want to have. Sure. And we were less satisfied than they were, you know. That's absolutely right. And and so much research conducted by governments is post facto justification for policies that have already taken place and money that's already been spent. And we have to accept that. That's real politique. It's the way that governments behave. And they shouldn't, but they do. But it would be nice if it were possible 
to find a way of measuring this stuff more accurately, irrespective of whether governments really want that, but just because one needs to know. I mean, call me old fashioned, but I think that if you're spending taxpayers' money on anything at all, it should be transparent, accountable and measurable. Even if the governments don't always share that view, um, you and I certainly do. What, what we started working on in the case of the, of the UK Public Diplomacy Board was a concept of what I call tri- triangulation. The way you find your place on a map or on the surface of the planet is by triangulating your position. And it began to look as if you could triangulate a position using available data in order to distinguish between just outcomes and outputs. And so if, for example, you say that your aim is to produce a change in behavior, and within a given time frame, you observe and can measure a change in your behavior in behavior of your target audience, then that looks good. So that's one point of the triangle. Another point of the triangle is what you contributed to the agenda. So what were we saying? What were we doing? Whom did it reach? Did it reach those people whose behavior subsequently changed? Yes or no? That's two points of the triangle. And then there's a third point of the triangle, which would help you to map precisely how much your activities were responsible for producing that effect. That point about outputs and outcomes is a distinction that really has to be made over and over and over right. again, because governments persistently measure outputs. You know, we achieved the measurements beloved of PR agencies when they say we got 70 centimetres of column coverage right. in the newspaper. As I said to the Foreign Office Minister at the time, this is a bit like when my wife gives me the money to join a gym because she wants me to lose weight. And she comes up to me after six months and says, prove to me that that you spent that money in the way I told you to. And I show her my gym membership card. (laughs) That just shows I didn't spend it on beer. What she wants me to do is to step on the scales and show her that I've actually lost weight. And governments are very bad at measuring weight loss and very good at measuring the number of cards they've bought. Sure. Absolutely. The number of leaflets printed, people who attended an exhibition and all. But this is part of historically part of the struggle of public diplomacy, the struggle to move away from just measuring output to really look at outcome and to show a policy difference to show to show mm-hmm. change. And the most disastrous experiences in public diplomacy seem to be really focused on uh, people saying, oh, but look at all our look at all our output. Uh, and then being surprised that things didn't happen. I'm thinking here of the work that was done by the United States around the, around the Vietnam War, mm. and the best, most skilled people with the biggest budget cannot sell a toxic policy. People are not stupid. Absolutely. Neither people outside Vietnam, inside Vietnam, nobody thought that was a good idea. Yeah outside of a few people in the governments in respective countries, you know, the, and, and you can't change that. Yeah. A point that's worth adding is that just, just going back to the, to the precise measurement question, technology can, of course, help us here, because one of the triangulation points that one is tempted to use is qualitative research. You speak to individual people within your target group and ask them, did you notice this action, this project, this communication, whatever it was, and what do you think about it? Now, that's a conversation. And up until now, historically, by definition, that kind of qualitative research could only be conducted in very small and therefore statistically unrepresentative numbers. And therefore, it's not really very useful. What AI can help us to do today is to have is to mechanize that process and to do qualitative research at the scale of quant. 
So if we want to now, and if we've got access to the people, we can actually have natural language conversations with millions of people. And that opens the route, I think, to something very interesting, which is possibly a much more precise measurement of whether we're spending taxpayers' money properly on this stuff or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes occasionally in the archives, I run into some really interesting findings, but they have come from in-depth scientific public opinion research where a lot of money was spent. Hmm. For example, the Marshall Plan set money aside for evaluation, and they, they found out that oh, something like 95% of Norwegians uh, had heard about the Marshall Plan. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's a useful thing. Or some wonderful research was done in Germany asking Germans in like it would be about 1950. Who is credible to you as a authority on conditions in America? And mm. only five percent said an American, <laughs> but 50 percent said a German who's been there. And then 20 percent said a book by a German who's been there. And you, it, it directs, it moves the whole conversation in public diplomacy around from, you know, what I've said previously, away from who, what can I say to a conversation about who can I empower? And I don't think that people in Thailand are going to be different from people in Germany. The, in that regard, I think that credibility rests with somebody who's similar to ourselves. And that really seemed, you know, I think we can, we don't have to keep doing the same research. We can work out certain universals in this business that would help us be more effective in designing policies. But the other thing I wanted to say, and this goes back to the business of repulsion. And, you know, maybe if you have a nation brand that is self-obsessed, the problem isn't just what you say, but it's also how you conduct your collaborations. Because if you're going into collaborations, looking to show off, looking to be the prima donna, it makes it so much harder to, to collaborate. And you, know, you and I were both involved with British public diplomacy at that moment when Tony Blair turned his back on the idea of promoting Britain and said, well, let's latch on to the big four policy problems. And I think it was climate, it was the European Union, it was countering violent extremism and promoting the knowledge economy. And it makes much more sense for the country to be collaborating around universal or broadly applicable issues rather than waving a little flag and, and saying, aren't we terrific? Yes. The irony behind the truth of that is that actually this is what a sophisticated marketing approach would tell you in the first place. The, the, it's often said that what's wrong with primitive style place branding is that it's too much like marketing, but actually it's like very, very bad marketing. Yes. It's the worst kind of marketing where you simply, you know, the kind that engineers do, where they're in love with their product and they're ignorant of consumers or don't even care about consumers and say, admire my wonderful product. And everybody knows that kind of marketing works very poorly. The right kind of marketing starts with the consumer and says, what does the consumer want or need? What do they want to learn that we can teach? What do they want to buy that we can sell? What do they regard as broken that we can fix? And then, of course, you're latching on like a, like a virus onto a spike protein, a place where you know you'll be welcomed. And this is the message I've been giving to, to, to governments for 20 years. Don't 
Think about yourself. Think about the people that you want to engage with. Find out what keeps them awake at night and do something about it. And if you succeed in doing that, you'll find that this is much cheaper than you expect because you don't have to pay a lot of money to force that story down their throats. You don't have to buy media. You don't have to hire a PR agency because if what you're doing is genuinely, genuinely and most importantly, imaginatively and courageously answering the needs that they have, then they're going to be taking that story from you instead of you forcing the story on them. Right. And so, you know, to bring this round towards something of a conclusion, uh, that suggests that what we what we need is an understanding of an interdependence yes. between both public diplomacy and place branding, that they, they, they need each other. But the greatest need is for a real understanding of the purpose of the nation in world affairs yes. and policies that are oriented towards the collective good, because people really what they what we know they want at home and abroad are countries that are doing the right thing mm. for the greater purposes that we all need right now yeah. and have always needed. Yes. And indeed, place branding, if it's going to survive at all as a discipline, I think has to pursue that angle. Luckily, the research supports it. The, 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 the analysis of the Nation Brands Index shows very, very clearly indeed that the only thing people really care about when they're looking at other countries is whether that country contributes to the world that they live in or not. And therefore, it has the potential to become a fundamentally moral exercise rather than a fundamentally immoral one, which is what it typically has been up until now. Governments spending taxpayers' money on bragging, on, on sending out futile propaganda. That's fundamentally immoral. Fundamentally moral says, forget branding, forget our image. Let's not be repulsive, vain fools. Let's just look at what needs fixing. Let's do what we can to fix it. And by the way, the good reputation will be a byproduct of that. Right. Well... I think we've arrived at a point of harmony and that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This has been People Places Power. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhold.